Hey y'all, welcome back to Chats from the Blog Cabin, the show where I invite people into the blog cabin to chat about life. I'm Melissa, your host, and today I'm chatting with Lane and we're chatting about simple passive income. Um, Basically, we're chatting about how you can turn your income into basically um, converting into rental property so you can have your own income. Um, Lane is very knowledgeable. He talks about how he doesn't even own his own house because he ended up buying his house, seeing, hey, why am I buying a house? So he rents his house out and he rents houses. So that's kind of cool. Um, I will say that this, you obviously can tell that he does have some money. And this is not for the faint of heart. He does suggest do not go into debt if you're wanting to get into this, have some investment money first. Um, so I will preference that first, but he talks about how you can handle the money, how you have some tax strategies as well. So I hope you really enjoy this episode. This has a lot of money episodes, um, a lot of money terminology, and I try to get him to talk in a little bit of the simpler layman's terms so everybody can understand, but I hope you enjoy it. You know what I need you to do right now? That's right. Start listening. Welcome back to another edition of Chats from the Blog Cabin. Today I'm joined by Lane. He's from Simple Passive Cashflow. And I thought since the holidays are over and a new year is starting, we need to talk about money and what we're doing with our money. So, Lane, before we start talking about what you do, just introduce us yourself to everybody. My name is Lane Kaoka. I currently own and operate 4,200 rentals. Um, but yeah, we're going to kind of talk a little bit about rental property, how I got started, right? And how people can get started. Yes, for sure. So with being a owner of a property, was that something that you've always wanted to do or is that just something you fell into? No, I mean, my parents never did rental real estate. In fact, when I was small, my, my parents told me, yeah, you don't want people owning or renting your house, so screw it up. Right. So there went that idea and I didn't start picking it up until my early 20s. So it's amazing how something that a parent can say can totally shift your mind on doing something. So how'd your mindset change from that? Yeah. So I I kind of like a little bit of background on where I came from. I kind of followed this linear path of studying hard, going to school, getting a good job. I eventually became an engineer and I started to work and I followed the old financial dogma of buying your house to live in, which I don't think is necessarily a good idea for some people. Um, you know, I think, I think a home is a great forced savings account and I think a lot of people need that accountability. But mm-hmm. for those of people who are good with their money, I'd say invest it. Um, so that's, I bought a house to live in 
I was never home because I was traveling for work all the time. Mm. And that was where I was kind of, it was kind of silly. I had this big house that I was only home on Saturday to enjoy. So I just called up an old landlord, property manager and rented it out. And the rents were 2,200 bucks a month. The mortgage was 1,600. I knew nothing about the rent to value ratio rate or all that type of stuff um, we can talk about later, but I, we we're making cash flow and I was like, wow, this is nice. And then after a few weeks went by, I was like, wait, keep doing this a few more times. I'll be able to fire my boss, get their rate. That was so, happened. So how long from you renting your first property to firing your bosses, so to say, how long did that happen? How long did that take? Yeah, so I bought that first property in 2009 and I eventually quit my job a couple of years ago as an engineer. So I did this all the way passive um, on the side as a side gig. And that's the brand of investing I do, right? Simple passive cash flow for a reason. I don't believe in wholesaling houses, flipping houses. And that's more of an active J-O-B job. Um, you know, a lot of my folks are higher paid professionals or busy entrepreneurs or you know, stay-at-home homemakers. Um, that combo with a high paid salary right? mm -hmm. and a lot of this is on the side people are busy they got kids they got they got professional careers um, but what's the most you can do from a passive point of view and that's buy and hold rentals so where do you find these rentals give us some tips on what to look for yeah so one of the biggest things uh, we don't buy rentals in what we call primary markets, we go to more secondary and tertiary markets. So the final primary market that is like California, Seattle, um, Hawaii, New York, Boston, like all the cool places to live, we don't buy there because the numbers don't make sense. And we distill it down to this thing called the rent to value ratio or RV ratio for short, where you take the monthly rental price divided by the purchase price. And we need that to be 1% or higher. So for example, you know, a lot of places that we'll buy are like places in secondary tertiary markets like Birmingham, Atlanta, Indianapolis, Kansas City, Houston, um, Memphis. Um, you know, a lot of these places you can buy good $100,000 houses that rent for $1,000 a month. So 1000 divided by 100 grand is 1% or better. So that's, that's kind of like the first thing. It's like we're buying for cash flow. We're not particularly buying for appreciation. If it happens, awesome. So if someone's starting out and they want to, they say, okay, I want to start my company flipping, not flipping houses, but buying houses to rent out. What would be the baseline? What would the things that they need to look for? Like, obviously, you know, when you're buying a house period, you're looking at things like whether or not you have to repair the roof or any major repairs. So what do you look for when you buy? Yeah. I mean, most of it is just the pure numbers right there. And that's something that people can do from their desktop. Right. And, you got to remember when you buy in this range of workforce housing, we call it. So not the high end, not the low end, not in the ghetto, the hard parts of the area. But, you know, this range between 700 bucks a month to maybe 12, 1300 bucks a month for rent. And you're, you're kind of buying commodities, right? I mean, mm -hmm. yeah, homes are very different, but essentially they're just, just a building, you know, and, you know, you try and stick to the basics and the very basic needs and this is where the glut of American population is it's in this middle range and this is what we kind of target as our acquisition so when you first you obviously said your first property was the house that you bought but if you were going back and looking back and starting out and you had very little cash flow 
what would you suggest that people do to, to increase their cash flow to be able to buy the properties? Well, I mean, if you look back what I did, I mean, it took me a few years to buy my first property. I mean, like a lot of my thing was I was pretty frugal back then, um, pretty cheap. I saved up all my salary and just saved up to buy down payments. Simple as that. You know, the government subsidized debt where you need 20% down payment. If you can't, you don't have the money, I don't know what to do. I mean, I, I know your guys' blog can like help out people save money there. I mean, that's... It ultimately comes down to your personal finances. I mean, the name of the game is saving to, for the down payments. The stuff I do, there's no tricks or games with it. There's none of this like no money down type of stuff. Mm -hmm. You can't save your money. This is not for you. Um, yeah. Because obviously you don't want all these mortgages that you're holding to go into default, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Well, I mean, but once you buy the property, you know, you should buy it with positive cash flow in there. So your balance sheet will continually improve after the first one. I mean, the, the first, my second property I bought a few years later after the first. And then by the time 2015 around, I had 11. So this was exponentially growing, right? Because if you think about it, if you buy your first property, $100,000 property, maybe you're cash flowing a few hundred bucks a month, that's $3,000 a year, right? Mm -hmm. Nothing crazy, but that helps you to acquire the next property so much more quicker. And for most of my clients, you know, they're higher paid doctors, lawyers, engineers, sports professionals. They're able to save about 30 to 50 grand a year. So that's enough firepower to go buy at least a house every year. And once they acquire more assets, now they're buying two, right? And this uh -huh. is just steam rolling. And yeah, I mean, it, this is not the get rich quick thing, but it's definitely a get rich surely plan. Yeah, because you're you're buying one property at a time. And are there been ever properties that you just said, no, I just can't. I've got to pass on this property. I mean, so when you kind of get into the, the more nitty gritty here, right? Like you're, you're buying with professionals helping you, right? Your broker, although the broker is always there to help you trying to buy the property. That's how they get compensated. Mm -hmm. But you use the aid of a licensed third party inspector to kind of make sure you're not buying a lemon. You're using a professional property manager who's going to help you manage the property, which by the way, we don't, I don't do any evictions myself or, or any interaction with tenants. I'm passive. I have a property that, that can have the, the cash flow to pay a professional property manager to do all this heavy lifting for me. And so that person is critical on the front end to vet the right area, the right type of rental. And you also have, you know, if you're buying with debt, the bank is going to kind of go in and do appraisal. So you have three key people that are helping you out on mm -hmm. this due diligence. And that's, you know, I, I think it's very possible to kind of not know anything going in and just kind of refine it from there. I mean, look at my first property it was in Seattle. I, I didn't know anything back then and it was in the bad area. I wouldn't invest in Seattle for cash flow, right? But yeah. as, I, as I learned, things got a little bit better and better and better over the years. Now, <clears throat> I'm just gonna ask you this question because my daughter is actually an interior architect major and she's thinking about buying a house and I'm just gonna ask some personal question. Um, she's thinking about buying a house and flipping it. So you suggest that she just buy it and then take it and do it a rental? I mean, you know, they call that house hacking, right? Where maybe you buy a duplex or you live in it and you kind of flip it to sell or rent out one room, right? I mean, that's that's cool for young people, but you know, most of my guys, they're working professionals. They don't, they're not broke, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, stuff like the house hacking genre, I mean, it works, but I, to me, it's not really worth the squeeze. It's not worth the, the, 
the hit quality of life, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, so if she's willing to do it, you know, it's probably why she's your daughter, right? She learned all these good money tactics from mom, right? Yeah. So she's willing to do like that. But um, yeah, I mean, she wants to do it, cool, right? But I just don't think it's, I think it's for younger people. I mean, I would never do it today myself. <laughs> So do you ever think that you ever wanted to do it? Did you ever want to do it when you were younger? Like take a house and flip it? Like, cause I know that's like the biggest thing now because you're watching all these HGTV shows. No, I mean, I, my high, it comes down to your highest and best use. My highest and best use was making six figures at my day job. Right. And I think that's what people have to analyze themselves and figure out what their highest and best use is. Yeah. If you're delivering mail, making 40 grand a year. Yeah. I mean, you might have to do that. You might have to do these burbs or these, these more active real estate strategies. But, you know, again, like it comes down to what you do for a living. Um, if you're making over 50, 60 grand a year at a professional job, you should probably, or perhaps just focus on getting that next promotion than mm-hmm. to screw around and take the act- actual added risk with doing more of a flip. And uh, I love house flippers because they pay my taxes for me. As a passive <laughs> investor, I get all these deductions and depreciation. We do cost segregations on our apartments and I pay little to no taxes because it's all passive income. And this is the big key differential that a lot of people don't realize. We're changing the color of our money to passive income so I can use my passive losses to offset it. And so, when, you're, when you're flipping a house, it's all ordinary income, just like your day job. So let's talk about passive income. Put it in layman's terms, exactly. Like someone who's just off the street and you're trying to explain like a 10 minute elevator sp- pitch about what you do and you're trying to get people to invest. Well, I mean, I think you hear a lot about passive income and sometimes it's a little scammy, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's a passive income, you know, sell this thing, right? Well, I mean, real estate is one of the, the time tested things out there. It, you make money four ways. You make money when you're cash flowing, you have the income um, greater than all the expenses, right? And people people really to get a grasp of this, they can download my analyzer, which can analyze all these rental properties um, at simplepassivecashflow.com slash analyzer. But it's a big spreadsheet. Um, it's not too hard, right? There's a video that walks you through it. But it's all for free that like, you know, helps you analyze, are you going to be cash flow positive, right? Because again, you know, like a thousand dollars a month rent, each of my fingers rips is a hundred bucks. hundred bucks is going to go to your property manager to do your heavy lifting for you. Another hundred bucks is going to be going to repairs. Another hundred bucks should be going to expenses and vacancy. And then you pay the mortgage. So you should have some overflow, maybe a couple hundred bucks of cash flow at that, at that point. And this helps you buy more and more properties or if you want to go buy something fun every month, go ahead. Right. Um, I probably, I kind of know what frugal mom's going to do with that money. <laughs> I just save it and buy more assets. But that's the first way you make money. Second way is with the tax deductions, right? Like I was kind of alluding to you use the deductions to pay less taxes to lower your adjusted gross income. Number three, you're having your tenants paying down your mortgage, right? So both of you guys have mortgages. You guys know when you pay your monthly payment, you're slowly bringing down the principal of that you owe and that's built up equity. But in this case, the tenants paying this thing for you, right? So that's, you're having that, that appreciation throughout the year. And then fourthly, you're, you have the appreciation of the property, which goes up and your leverage, usually four to one, five to one. And when you add them all up, you're making like 30 or 40% a year. So early on, I kind of realized like, why the heck 
am I investing in my 401k, my stocks, when at 8 to 10%, when I can just be doing this and something as simple as a turnkey rental that's making 30, 40% a year. To me, it made no sense until I realized that this whole system is created to keep us working for 40, 50 years and these garbage investments that only make Wall Street rich. I mean, how else do they make these buildings, right? Like, there's just a lot of bad financial advice. And I think, you know, it's the same reason why you have your, your channel is there's just a bad, a lot of bad financial advice that keeps a lot of hardworking people working too long. I know. One of the reasons why the, it's called Chats from the Blog Cabin is because I had always dreamed of having an office outside of the home. And I thought, oh, I'll go rent something. But I'm like, no, I love these she sheds, these tiny homes. So that's what we did. We bought a storage building and it's actually 50 yards from my back step but i knew it was better smarter financial decision for me to pay for something that i owned instead of paying out rent for a property for me to go to work in so and i yeah. created everything inside so yeah i mean at, at some point i've kind of switched my mentality where you know you go from scarcity mindset to abundance mindset look this real estate investments they work you you grow your money at 20 or two or three times what you are in the stock market or any mutual funds, or any retirement funds, you're going to have excess cash. And now you start to create your lifestyle the way you want. Go ahead and buy a stupid purchase like a Mercedes or whatever, mm -hmm. right? You have the cash flow from your investments paid for that type of stuff. So you're still not holding any debt at all. Basically your only debt is tied up in the houses or in the properties that you're renting. Yeah, and, and I, I know like there's this is kind of like a big thing, right? Like people get wrapped over debt. They think all debt's bad. But to me, if generally if you're looking at above eight to ten percent interest rate, it's generally bad debt, right? Consumer debt, bad, 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 right? But mm -hmm. if I'm picking up properties that push put additional cash flow into my pocket every month, I I'm okay paying the debt service on that. And the way this country is going, you know, how else are we going to pay for all this stuff, this government entitlement programs, but you inflate the money supply. And this is how, what the government does, right? They, they have only have two levers to pull. They can either raise taxes, which they try not to do because it pisses people off, right? It gets people not elected. Or you just inflate the money supply because it's an insidious thing. It's kind of like gravity, right? You don't blame gravity on anybody, just like you don't blame inflation on the government whoever's in office right trump biden whatever you don't blame it on them but it's a lever that the fed's playing in the back where they're inflating the money supply so if you if you believe in what i'm saying you go out and you acquire lots of good debt right because i mean just look at it from your parents when they bought that house that was like 30 grand back in the day their mortgage payment was maybe i don't know less than few hundred bucks or a few hundred bucks right mm -hmm. they carried that few hundred bucks payment to today and they like you know they maybe if it was even an interest only type of loan they still owe 30 grand right mm -hmm. that 30 grand is nothing today so essentially that's what i keep doing right they call it um kind of inflation hedging right mm -hmm. me grabbing all this great debt i mean i'm picking up huge loans like 20 million dollar loans at three percent and this, these assets that I'm picking up create millions of dollars of cash flow. 
I mean, why would you not do it, right? But I think there's a big paradigm shift between your Dave Ramsey, Susie Mormons, and in this world where I think I like Dave Ramsey, I like Susie Orman, I like the message because they're teaching people basic financial mm -hmm. advice. And it's good for people who just cannot seem to hold on to their freaking money, right? And I don't think that's the people really listening here. People listening here are kind of making their way to more of mm -hmm. the enlightened world, right? Where it is, you know, use debt. That's a tool, right? Using a hammer to hurt, to hit somebody can cause a lot of damage, but it can do a really good job to build a house with a bunch of nails, right? Same thing with debt. Yeah. So you said how many properties do you own now that are rental properties? 4,200. Um, after a while, I started to, as I became more of an accredited investor, I stopped buying single family homes and started to pick, pick up these in more bulk apartments, 50 units to 300 units a piece. So that this is where I got to 11 rentals back in 2015. And I paid to be in different mastermind groups and get around other more sophisticated investors. And this is where I found that a lot of these guys, when their net worth got to be above credited status, they started to invest in what's called syndications and private placements as passive LP investors. So no liability, um, they don't put the loans in their name. If you're worried about debt, right? If you're really, really worried about it, you don't get any debt in your name, right, in your LP. And then you go on these larger deals, these stronger deals as a passive investor, you don't do anything. You just bring in money and you can cash your checks, go to sleep. So where do you find these properties at though? Like you said, I know you said you work with a broker or you work with, but is there a certain target market that you're like, okay, I want to be in so-and-so today. I want to find some place like you were mentioning Atlanta. I want to be in Atlanta. Do you have a particular broker that you work with in Atlanta or do you work with several brokers or, you know, how do you find these properties? Yeah. So we, we play in more of the commercial realm, which is very different from the residential world of, you know, under eight units and less. So, in the broker, in the commercial realm, um, these brokers are really trying to get to distressed sellers for us and bring us the, the pick of the litter. Um, it's taken us a while to get to this stage where we get the pick um, from, from all the good deals out there. Because most deals just don't pencil. Probably 99.9% .9 just don't really pass the, the sniff test. Um, so. You know these these brokers are out there we target our strike zone that we go after our stabilized assets so 90 percent occupied so they're decent they're working well right mm -hmm. they're cash flowing we we have their financials we know that they're making money and but we go in also to projects where we know we can maybe put a little bit of value add into the property so we're in there we're fixing up the new flooring you know put that nice lvt modern stuff that's indestructible and pretty cheap put that in, put in new appliances, put in um, new paint, um, maybe just exterior improvements. But we're not getting into big stuff in the unit, like mm -hmm. we're not doing modern ops. We're staying right around three to $6,000 of renovations per unit, but it doesn't seem like a lot. But when you do it in, a, in an apartment unit, it just makes it pop. And this is what yeah. allows us to get a little bit higher rents, you know, maybe 100 to 50 bucks increase in rents. And that's, we, we like the cash flow during the hold as we're doing all these renovations. And at some point we refinance to get that equity out or sell the asset. And yeah, make a whole bunch of money doing that and improve the communities while we're in there too. 
Now, I do have to ask the question, because I know a lot of people are probably thinking this. You were talking about renovations. What happens to the tenants if, if the apartment is already leased out and it's the tenants are living there and you're doing a renovation? Do you offer them someplace to live or do they have have a choice to like, do you raise their rents? You know, you know where I'm talking, you know where I'm going. Yeah, I mean, our our business plan, we try and prioritize cash flow for our investors. So we don't kick out people. What we normally do is we try and naturally turn them over into a, a, a turned unit, right? So there's always units up that are being worked on that are mm -hmm. out of service. Usually it takes a couple of weeks, right? And in that interim, we're kind of transitioning tenants out. And for people who own rental properties and, or people who've just lived in apartments, right? Or we all kind of know our own migration habits. We tend to move out of a property every couple of years. So, mm -hmm. you know, we have a hundred unit apartment complex. I kind of know every month I, people are going to be kind of just moving in or moving out. So what we try and do in that interim, we try to rehab the unit. Now some, some tenants, what we'll do is, you know, if they're, we like them <laughs> and we're always trying to improve the tenants, right? Don't mm -hmm. get me wrong. It's a bad tenant. We, we kind of want them gone for the whole, for the greater community. But if it's a good tenant, we'll probably put them into another unit and waiting for their, their new unit to come online or likely, you know, we're kind of matching this stuff ahead, working ahead constantly. So we have them, them ready to defend. Ideally, we want them to, you know, when we, when we tell them, Hey, you know, your lease is up in a month or two months from now. Hey, do you want to renew? All right, well, let's take you, let's take you around. Like, hey, do you like this one? Well, this one's already ready to go when you end your lease. Would you like to slide over into that? Like, you know, we're not trying, we don't kick people out. Um, I don't think that's nice. And uh, yeah. it, it hurts our bottom line, right? Because we want that, we want that consistent occupancy. Yeah, because like I said, they're they're already paying your rent. So you don't want to lose that rent because who knows when another tenant may come around to, well, I mean, it's pretty, trust me, it's pretty, uh, people need a place to live. And that's why we stay in this realm of workforce housing, right? Between 700 bucks to 1300 bucks a month rent, that's where the majority of America is. And they need good quality housing, which we provide. And I think we're better than most. So we have people lining up. Oftentimes we're above 100, 103% free leased for the next month. So, uh, I mean, we're not hurting for we're not hurting for people looking to rent. And even through COVID, I mean, we didn't really see any kind of impact from COVID. Mm -hmm. and, and a lot of I think a lot of that is to do that we invest in more red states. So typically more landlord friendly uh, locations than you know Socialist Republic of California where you can't fix something for twelve months. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but the way I grew up, if you can't pay your rent, you can't stay. Mm. Wow. So you started this and you have this, this thing that you, you know, you're going through passive cash flow, simple passive cash flow, but now you're starting teaching this course. And so let's talk about your, how you maneuvered into and how you kind of changed your mindset and started teaching it to others. Yeah. I mean, who better to teach it than somebody that lives and breathes it and operates it every day. So I actually enjoy the financial consulting side for high net worth families. So I run a family office. Actually, it's a group of family offices that I call the family office, Ohana Mastermind. So, you know, going into good deals and investments to me is one third of it. But what these investments unlock is when they do cost segregations and kick out this bonus depreciation and passive losses is now it starts to allow people to play 
these tax strategies were they can lower their income very much lower. So they have more, they don't pay the tax man as much. Mm -hmm. And that allows them to invest more, which is a constantly feeding forward thing. And it also allows them to do other wealth building strategies such as infinite banking with insurance and stuff like that to bank from themselves and be their own bank. But you know, this is what I discovered when I started to join these higher level groups. The, the stuff that wealthy families are doing is very different than what my parents grew up with. And I thought it was a huge shame that like there's so many hardworking Americans out there just you know, they're white knuckling their way through through life and they're mm -hmm. trying to like do everything that they were told to, but they were just lied to. It's just a bunch of BS created by financial companies or you know, to kind of just keep working. Um, and I'll be honest, like if people just buy a rental property and then it'll keep the plan for the next few years and buy a few more, they're gonna be financially free in a decade or less. Mm -hmm. um, society would not function, right? No food, yep. make our coffee, you know? Yep. Now you you hit the magic word taxes, tax strategies, how people can actually get not pay as much taxes. So tell us about some of those strategies that you use. Yeah, I mean, you know, you ask most CPAs and they'll tell you the lame stuff like a 401k, Roth IRA, health savings account. We're not talking about any of that type of stuff. Um, what we're talking about is using the deductions that you get from your real estate. And real estate is one of the most tax advantaged things out there. You can actually take a paper loss on your real estate, the building value over 27 years, right? So like if you have a, a house, you can take the, the building improvement value and you divide it by 27 years and you can take that as a loss every year. So it could be very possible for you to have a negative um, on paper asset, right? That you can use to offset your other passive income. Now things get super amazing now when you, you know, with the la last swing of tax changes, we have this thing called bonus depreciation. So if you're able to do a cost segregation on your property, now you can take up to a third of all the building value in the first year. Cool, that's huge. It is freaking amazing. Now you can use that passive losses to however you see fit. Now, when you combine that with a real estate professional status on your taxes, now you just unlock the mother load because now it is possible to lower your ordinary income. So this is how I have some doctors making 600 grand a year and they, they can lower it to whatever they choose to be. Mm -hmm. you know? I mean, people talk about Donald Trump, give that guy a hard time, not saying I like him or, I, or, I, or whatnot, but you know, he paid $750 in taxes. That was likely a screw up with his, his tax account, right? The amount of real mm -hmm. estate that guy owns, he really shouldn't pay no taxes. And I'm probably offending a lot of people by saying this because people are like, oh, everyone's got to pay taxes. But the people investing in real estate, you got to remember that these are the people that are putting their skin out there. They're the ones powering the economy through uncertain times like a pandemic. And the tax code is written in such a way that these people get these deductions and are incentivized to do it. Um, it is what it is. And I, I think it's kind of like, it, it's like a perk, right? Like, I mean, if you don't, if you just keep your money locked up in the stock market or in a bank account, you're not helping society. 
you're just keeping it all to yourself. And therefore, the government has deemed you need to pay taxes, right? But investors, they're putting their money into an apartment building or a mobile home park and hopefully improving that community, making life better, right? Or a small, like, single-family home investor, you're buying a house and you're making it better. And this is what society needs, right? It's kind of like we're all a bunch of honeybees mm -hmm. flowering you know, roses or whatever. And as a reward for that, the government says that we don't need to pay taxes, right? If, if we follow these types of things and, you know, write our numbers the right way. Um, so, no, I don't feel bad about not paying any taxes. I kind of feel like, well, if everybody did this, this country would be really firing on all cylinders. We'd be like really using them. So you mentioned cost segregation. What is that for people that don't understand the the terminology? Yeah, I mean, it's it, it, it can get a little complicated, but basically what it is, it's just a little bit of a accounting write-up where a guy goes out and he itemizes all the components of the building and separates it in one, three, five, seven-year property. Now, that's about my understanding that this goes, I'm an investor, I don't really get into the nitty gritty, that's my accountant's job to understand that. But it's just a little paper exercise that now allows me to, to deduct those individual assets a lot quicker than the normal average. Okay. Um is there anything else you want to share with us? I mean, honestly, you're like, my head is swirling with all this information that you shared about investing. Cause I'm, this is like my husband, and I just had a conversation the other day, like we need to go find a rental property because when we retire, we'll have, you know, money still coming in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it can get overwhelming. Right. And I think part of it is like when people think of real estate investing, they think of the HGTV stuff, which I say, don't, I don't do any of that stuff, right? Like I strictly focus on passive investing. And when you passively invest, look, you need money, right? Not gonna lie, right? If your net worth is under a quarter million dollars, you're likely looking at buying a single family home rental. I mean, that's how I did when I was, you know, broke and you know, mm -hmm. starting college. It took me a while to build up my net worth. But for more investors that are, you know, getting their net worth up, there are certainly accredited investors. You know, that's where the syndications and private placements come in. So there's a there's a journey process, right? And depending where you are, where you start, how much money you have, what your net worth is, that's where you kind of start. So I guess what I would suggest, like if people are under a quarter million dollars net worth, I would tell them to go check out my info page on Turnkey Rentals, uh, simplepassivecapital.com/turnkey, and uh, my first dozen podcasts were all about buying remote turnkey rentals because, again, I mean, a lot of the rentals that cash flow, that the numbers make sense, likely will not be where you live. Mm -hmm. And I'll call it out right now. Look, guys, you guys got to get out of comfort zone. Likely it's not going to be where you live. I mean, I live in Hawaii. I would never buy properties out here. It doesn't make sense, right? And that's the key thing. You got to buy properties that make sense in cash. And it ain't going to be in those primary markets that I said. Um, but so yeah. Do you own your house in Hawaii or do you rent a house in Hawaii? I rent. Renting is <laughs> the best thing. It's such a, it, see, this is what's crazy, right? It's such a paradigm shift. Everybody says buy your own house to live in. And I, and I agree. It's for people who are unable to manage their finances. I think it's a good for savings account, but you can do so much better, right? Like if I had a $600,000 house, you know, you need a $120,000 down payment. 
I would rather go and buy four houses or five houses with that money out in the Midwest, you know, 20% down payment and have that grow so much more faster than just sinking it into a house that just keeps up with the pace of inflation. That's all it does. Mm -hmm. But people have this in their head. They're like, oh, renting is like throwing money down the drain. I'm like, no, that's hogwash. It's Let's walk through the numbers. I'll show you the numbers. Numbers don't lie. People just make, make things up like that. And, and I think that kind of coincides with like the big financial wisdom is never take financial advice from people who are not financially free, mm. right? Not your mom, not your dad, not Glenn or Larry at the cubicle and with you, right? Not, not Cindy at the park, you know? Don't, until I, I started to get around financially free people, I started to discover that the people do think very different, right? Question everything, put it that way. I love that you said don't take advice from Cindy at the park because a lot of people see what somebody else is doing and think, oh, I can do that too. And then they end up losing everything because they're taking not sound advice. So honestly, I think the first thing you would probably tell people is to research your property that you're going to buy, right? Yeah, yeah, get educated, um, you know, listen to some podcasts, like my podcast, get yourself educated for a few months, and then at some point you gotta dive in and learn by doing. But uh, I think, you know, educating yourself for the, all the, I mean, all, everything's on my website for free, right? Go ahead, have at it, right? Spend a few months doing that. Um, but yeah, you don't learn by until doing, right? That's, that's the thing with it. So when you first, got your first property, you said it was your house that you ended up renting out. But when you bought that second property that you knew you weren't going to live in and it wasn't going to be your house, was there any kind of, a lot of people get emotionally attached to houses. You know how that goes. Was there any emotional attachment or did you come at strictly like it's business investment and I need to keep all my emotions out of this? I'm an engineer. I got no feelings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, but you know, like that was the first property I bought was an A-class rental. And you don't buy A-class rental. A-class rentals are kind of newer properties and the, the nice areas, right? We buy more B and C-class type of properties. So, you know, B, C-class are a little rough. I'm not going to lie. They're not going to be in the best school districts. Um, but B-class, I think, is the nice sweet spot. It's a little bit less headaches with tenants. And I think that's just what investors, that's where the money is to be made. Right, it's not in the luxury stuff. You're not the numbers aren't going to pencil there, and it certainly isn't on the low low end, right? The D class and the horizontal properties, but the C mm -hmm. is the B class, and they're not going to be in the best school districts. They're not. I probably wouldn't want to hang out there at night, right? Mm -hmm. you know, um, but that's where the money's to be made. And it, luckily, as a passive investor, you never really have to visit your properties because you have a property manager doing all that hard work for you. That's what I was just going to say. So once you buy your properties, you also have, you need what an accountant, a property manager. Do you have a specific way you find your property managers or in your accountants? Um, yeah. I mean, it takes a long time to find that team. Right. And I would suggest you have to build up a network of other passive investors, peers, because that's where you're going to get your referrals from. Oftentimes, you know, you can't go to Yelp. You can't go. There's no website for this stuff, right? Because it's just you just find the good internet marketers. And the crazy thing is, like, like brokers or property managers, you don't want to go to the big brokerage houses because typically you're getting the, the 
to do it or the gap who can't sell houses, who's incompetent at their first job. You certainly don't want them managing your property, man, your, your property. Cause that's, I think it's a way harder job than just selling, looking pretty and selling houses. Mm -hmm. So you have to build up your network of other pure passive investors that are kind of doing the same thing. And, um, you know, kind of go up, make friends and go off referrals. And that's why I've kind of built up my community. Um, I have a free Facebook group um, that a lot of more passive minded individuals are here. And, you know, that's a, a good community to kind of start to make connections. And Which you brings me to the next point. Where can people find you? Because you're a wealth of information. I mean, I'm, like I said, my head is swirling with all the information that you shared. Yeah, they can go to my website, simplepassivecashflow.com. I also have my podcast, Simple Passive Cashflow, Passive Investing, iTunes, Google Play. Um, but yeah, everything is out there on my website for free. People can go and uh, download um, the analyzer there for free. Yeah, I mean, you need to get people out outside of the Wall Street stuff and investing in Main Street, right? Yeah. Now, what would you say to people that are like really scared right now because, you know, COVID? There are so many people that are scared. They don't think they think the country's going to end in COVID and we shouldn't be investing and we shouldn't do this. What would you say to that? That's why you invest in cash flow, right? I mean, when you invest in cash flow, you don't care what the prices go up or down, right? You have the option to sell when it's up and you can hold on to when it's down. So I don't care about what the prices do. Um, that's the, the quintessential difference between the way I do it and 99% of everybody else out there who's buying low, sell high. Mm -hmm. uh, buy low, sell high, easy come, easy go, right? To me, I, I don't think it's a it's a prudent business plan. But when you're buying for cash flow, you can't you can't lose. Right? You mm -hmm. dictate when you sell and you cement that return. Um, but essentially, you're just buying a cash flow stream, right? And I think this is one one big thing that people get wrong building wealth is they 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 subscribe to the accumulation theory. Right, mm -hmm. that you're going to build up two to four million dollars, and then you retire, right, and live off of it, right? Create this big pile of cash, which I think is completely wrong. Because what happens when you get to that point? Well, you need to live off of that cash. That mm -hmm. you need to convert it to cash flow. So I say, like, why not begin with the end in mind? Start with mini streams of cash flow today, so you can live off of it. But maybe you don't eat it, right? You got a day job, cool. That you your days are numbered there, you know, likely you don't want to work there for more than 10 years, but you use that money to go buy more, create more mini streams of cash flow, essentially mini pensions, right? Mm -hmm. And to get out of that accumulation there into creating cash flow streams today. And this is this is I think what I think clicks for a lot of people. They're like, oh, okay, now I see the paradigm shift. It's very different from what is normally taught to me. Well, it's because those companies, they just want you to invest in their Vanguard or Fidelity, whatever, whatever. So mm -hmm. That's why it's taught like that. Now, you said you buy low, sell high. Has there been properties that you bought low that you've sold and just kind of, okay, I'm ready for another investment. I really don't want to hold on to this property anymore or? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're selling an apartment in Atlanta right now, looking to double investors money in a few years. Um, it's in a rough area and quite frankly, I'd, I don't really want to go there personally. <laughs> so we're going to sell it. Um, but if it was, if that area, I mean, Atlanta's still a great area, but if that particular submarket within Atlanta was, had a lot of more legs on it, something mm -hmm. was moving in. Yeah. We hold and we cap, we cash out refinance, which is beautiful because 
anybody who's done a cash out refinance, the money that you get is tax free. And then mm. so you, the idea is you just keep cash tax on. You, know, you collect the cash flow every month, but you also do a refinance every few years forever, mm. right? So, I mean, that's the plan on some properties and some you just rather sell, but you know, in a big portfolio of over, I mean, like maybe a few dozen deals right now, I mean, it's diversified. It's multiple cash flow streams. The, the main thread is it's all workforce housing. It's something that this country needs and it's in good areas and it's in red states and it is something that you know, we need more of. Now you just mentioned investors. Are there investors in you with you uh, in your apartment complexes or do you own them all outright? Yeah. So we'll bring in, um, investors into each individual deal. Um, and these are kind of how syndications work, right? The country club deals, um, most deals out there. I mean, large buildings are either bought by a large institution or a small private group. Okay, cool. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on because, I mean, honestly, like I said, my brain is just blown. I've got all this stuff going on in my head, thinking about all the things. And I'm sure I'm going to hit you up later with an email asking you more questions about it because I think this is really interesting. And a lot of people really need to be able to do this. Yeah, I mean, it changed my life. I mean, I, I thought I was going to be working for 40, 50 years as a lowly engineer, but I got out at eight. Wow. So did you think you did all that schooling for nothing? Uh, you know, I, I'm not too big fan of like going to college these days. I still think most people should go to college, but look, it, it allowed me to get a good job initially for the down payment money. I mean, none of, none of this moves unless you have money. Yeah. I mean, so there's a lot of ways you can make money, but for me, my highest and best use at the time was trading my time for dollars as an engineer. So that's what, that was the next thing I was I was going to ask you is you we were talking about ways to make money because people that are, don't have the great job like you said like making forty thousand maybe a year what do you suggest they do if they want to start getting into this type of business I don't know man I mean like I'm not the guy to ask I do I do I've been playing around with this one technique called trade line hacking um, I don't know if you guys have stumbled upon it but you. Mm -hmm. If you have credit cards, you can put authorized users on your card and you can rent it out. I mean, I made 10 grand every year for the last couple of years doing this stuff. Wow. Um, so it's pretty massive and it's kind of fun. <laughs> you know, you can, I mean, I, sometimes I make like a few hundred bucks each time I put on an authorized user. Um, there are obviously, you know, some safeguards you have to put in place because you know, you're I'm playing around your credit cards, but I don't take exception to it. I mean, hmm. There's an article on my website about this. Um, okay. So yeah, if people are interested in it, yeah, let me know. Um, we actually have an e-course on it. So if you kind of want to share it to your group later on, maybe you can yeah, uh, I will. I will. tailor it for you guys. I'm going to put all that stuff in the links in the in, in, for the podcast as well as in the yeah. Facebook group. But as far as making money, I don't know. I mean, that's all I got. The trade line thing is pretty much the... I'm always looking for what's the least amount of work and risk that I can put in to get something, you know, if it's a lot of work and it's risky, I'm, I'm just going to like keep doing my steady thing. Just buying all rentals. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you so much for being on chats from the block cabin today. Yeah. Thanks for having me.
All right, guys, we will see you on our next chat for the blog cabin. Is your mind spinning? I know mine is. I mean, it was like, woo, when he was talking, my mind was just going, wow, all this information, all this information. I was taking notes left and right as he was chatting. Um, I will say, like he said, if you do not have the money, do not invest. Um, but it's like he said, it's something to think about down the line because obviously if you are making fifty to $60,000 a year and you're a doctor or a lawyer or you have a passive income, invest it into something so that later on when you have retirement, you aren't worried about where your money's coming from when you, it's time for retirement because then you have um, income coming from rental properties that you don't have to really worry about. Um, you don't have to go out and buy a huge uh, apartment building like he does because he has investors now. You can go and buy a few houses and like he says in the in the not the big communities but like in a college town for instance. I would say for us a college town would be a great rental property for us because we have a lot. We live near, we live about an hour away from a college town and there's always college students and military. Military towns are great because there's always military families that are looking to rent instead of buying properties. So always look for something like that. Especially if you're a military family, if you consider buying a property, you can always rent it out. I know a friend of mine had, they bought their house and they end up renting their houses out after they buy them and that's income for them. So think about that, but don't go into debt just because you think, oh, I have this little bit of extra money. If you're not good with the money, then definitely don't do that. I thank you so much for being part of the podcast family. The next episode that I have coming up is one about speaking in front of people, um, which (laughs) I will admit on this episode, um, I do admit on the next episode that I had the hugest anxiety about speaking in front of people and I admit it on there, but it's a really great episode coming up. Um, But I thank you so much for being part of the podcast family and I hope you guys have a great rest of your day. Be blessed and remember, keep chatting.